Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 242. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 242 you're listening to. My guest today is Brian David Hood. Brian is a friend of mine who is a uh, record producer, mix engineer, owner of 456 Recording Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, He is the original and former drummer of the band My Children, My Bride. Uh, He's also an entrepreneur. And we're going to talk about all of his various ventures that he does. But uh, Brian is a person that I talk to most Friday mornings uh, when we do these mastermind calls that I've mentioned in the past. Video call with a group of people, including Chris Salim, Lid Shaw, Chris Graham, Ian Shepard, and varying degrees of different people who come in and out. But uh, Brian is part of those video calls. So super excited to have him on. Now, I have to tell you that we went with his middle name in this, Brian David Hood, because we have had Brian Hood on before, a different Brian Hood. That's the Brian Hood that helped build Tiny Telephone in Oakland and Tiny Telephone Studio B in San Francisco. So to eliminate all confusion, we've gone with Brian David Hood. So today's guest, Brian Hood, agreed to do that just to keep the... uh, Keep it all simple and not confuse you all. So Brian David Hood coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, get your coffee cups in position and get ready to commence caffeination. Let's talk about archiving. Uh, Recently, you might have heard me talk about restoring some ancient Pro Tools sessions that uh, were so old that it took taking them over to a different system with Pro Tools 10 to migrate them forward to Pro Tools 2019 or whatever it is we're currently on. The latest, the greatest. That was something, a point of fascination for me, the age of those Pro Tools sessions and the fact that it all worked. Former WCA guest John Cunaberti heard that episode and and unfortunately for me has hired me to help him migrate a a group of masters from uh, Mr. Joe Satriani from a similar time period uh, from actually almost 20 years ago forward to Uh, Pro Tools 2019 in the same fashion. So John and I met up the other day and we were going over things and it's complex, believe it or not, because we were, you know, there's a lot of material and we're trying to figure out how to do it right because I was forgetting a couple key components and finally came up with a method and now I am off to the races with uh, migrating all that stuff. So that's that's kind of been on my radar lately. As a result, I have uh, taken another look at my whole system of taking care of my own clients' material, as well as uh, recalling discussions with former WCA guest Jessica Thompson about how best to archive the Working Class Audio podcast. And so I have been reevaluating the systems and how that's done and the best practices for me and really thinking it through. And want to encourage you to do the same. Make sure that you have a system in place. Uh, it's tough. I get it because, you know, you're in the heat of doing 
I don't know, mixes or masters for somebody, you get to the end of the project and, you know, it's always a race to, to get it all done. What I think a lot of us fail to do immediately afterwards is uh, prep those sessions, no matter what your DAW, and prep them for the future. So if you're using some drum samples, for example, in a mix, print those samples in there. You know, it's inevitable that the plugins that you have in a session are not going to possibly survive the future, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Who knows? Who knows if the session itself or the audio will survive for that matter. But in the interest of what we know now, I would encourage you to print your drum samples, print anything that you think is out of the ordinary, like uh, maybe there's some uh, hardware inserts. Make sure you do that. And then uh, save copy in, save session copy in as uh, if you're a Pro Tools user, you would know to redirect all that into a new location so that you gather up and, you know, take all of those files, no matter what drives they're on, and drive them to a new location so that, that that session will open. And then make multiple copies of it. You know, make sure it's in at least three different locations. One thing that I'm toying around with, which I would love your input on if, if any of you have a strong opinion about it, I've been looking into this concept of using LTO tape backup uh, it's an old format that has been around for a long time, but it keeps uh, migrating forwards in terms of its capacity. You'll hear the terms like LTO 5, 6, 7, and 8. I think currently we're on LTO 8. And these cartridges, these tape cartridges, seem to, uh, from what I've read, have a up to a 30-year lifespan of stored in ideal conditions. So, yeah, it's something I'm thinking about it's got a high startup cost but the media is relatively inexpensive and you know just thinking about the future of client stuff is it my responsibility would be the next question to maintain this stuff it may or may not be but i feel that it's enjoyable to make sure you help preserve a piece of uh of, of, a, of a person's musical history uh because if you take the time to do it right, that can be a great thing because quite honestly, there's a lot of people that surround artists, including artists themselves, who don't take the time to do it right. And if you can help be the one who restores something that is needed many, many years from now, or at least have a roadmap on how to find that stuff for others, it can be a great thing. Think about it if, uh, if that is part of your day-to-day uh, -day working with artists and working with uh, their material, take a few extra steps. Maybe it's something that you're not going to see a return on quickly, but maybe later in the future when they ask you to restore it, you can charge them a restore fee. I don't know. Or maybe you just do it out of the goodness of your heart. I don't know. That's up to you. That's up to you to figure out, uh, not for me to judge or tell you what to do either way. So be thinking about that. I'll keep you up to date. I'll let you know what I come up with, but uh, I'm kind of reevaluating and redoing things and trying to stay on top of it. For example, when I finish this episode, I am immediately going to archive it in multiple locations and be done with it and get it off my current work drives. So I'm going to try to do that with not only the podcast, but all my other work from my audio clients. So that's it. Archiving.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Brian David Hood here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. I've been meaning to have you on for quite some time. And funnily enough, one of the things that we've discussed in having you on is the confusion between you and the first Brian Hood that was on many, many <laughs> moons ago. Brian Hood, who helped design Tiny Telephone in Oakland, and so we figured the way to get around that was to use your middle name, Brian David Hood, to yeah. navigate that. Funny story with that is I had done a number of podcasts around that time. And when I was looking through your podcast feed, I'd done some research on like podcasts that I was like looking for. And then I wanted to maybe be interviewed on or something or reach out to people and just connect with them. I saw my name on your podcast. I was like, did I, was I interviewed on this podcast? I don't remember this. And so I listened to it. I'm like, who is this guy? And I quickly realized, no, that's not me. 
So I, you know, I was also confused myself on your podcast by the same name as this guy. Well, strangely enough, there's actually a Matt or Matthew Boudreaux out there other than me who is in audio, who I've yet to meet in person or over email. And uh, I'm sure at some point we will cross paths. There's an f- even more famous Brian Hood out there. And if you Google Brian Hood, you'll probably find him. He's a fatal attraction killer, which is like a famous murder case, I guess, in the 90s, maybe 80s. So if you Google my name, like my Wikipedia comes up and some of my stuff, but a lot depends on who you are. It'll be a murder that comes up first. So. I'd rather be confused with the tiny telephone recording studio, Brian Hood from San Francisco than the murderer, Brian Hood. Yeah. Wow. Well, you got that going for you. (laughs) Well, uh, it's good to have you on. Let's get the audience acclimated here. Brian and I know each other primarily. We, well, we met originally because every Friday we join into a video call with a group of friends from around the country and actually the globe, because some of us are in Canada and some of us are in the UK. And we call it a mastermind call. You Audience, you may have heard me talk about that before. Brian is one of the folks that's on that call. So it's a little weird in that we met on the internet, but we have met in person. We have, we've hung out in person numerous times. In fact, I just saw you at NAM at the Addiction Studios party. That's the only time I saw you on that trip, but that's how we know each other. Brian is, not to blow smoke up your ass, Brian, but Brian- <laughs> Blow it away, dude. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Look out, here it comes. <laughs> Brian is one of the people in this world that I, I, first of all, I have great respect for you and I really admire just your, your thought process, your brain and how you do things. You inspire me a lot. You get me to really pay attention to some things that I think otherwise I would not. You're considerably younger than me. And I, I like the fact that there's somebody considerably younger than me, who's probably 10 times as smart as I am coming up with great ideas and great and doing great things. And so I love, I love hanging out with you and I love talking with you. So uh, there's the smoke for you. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it, man. I will say that uh, it goes both ways. And that's the cool thing about mastermind groups. If anyone's listening that does not have a mastermind group or a peer group that they talk with regularly about whatever they're passionate about or whatever they're working towards, it is really awesome to have a diverse group that has people that see things from different life points from different life views and have different perspectives on the same things and different ways to look at the same problem because, you know, I have a younger perspective on things. So I might have a different way of doing things than you might. And you have a different way of doing things that I might not have looked at because I'm a young whippersnapper and I don't know how to do stuff. Right. So it goes both (laughs) ways, man. So I appreciate the wisdom you've given me over the years on the, on the calls. Yeah. You were actually a huge part of helping Chris and I launch the six figure home studio podcast. Like you were one of the, the mentors we had as we were getting that up and running. And for the audience, we're talking about Chris Graham, former WCA guest, Chris Graham. So let's start with that just really quick. Let's start with what you're doing now. And mm-hmm. one of the things you are doing now is the Six Figure Home Studio podcast. So talk a little bit about that, about what inspired you to do that. Yeah. So the Six Figure Home Studio podcast and blog and YouTube channel, it's like a just a whole thing was inspired by some really, really bad business advice I saw somebody give on the internet. It was a producer that I really, really respected. It's somebody whose work I looked up to. And somebody came to him with a question about a studio business-related question. And this producer gave him horrible advice. He said, you can't get started with that much money. Run the other way as fast as you can. It kind of gave me this righteous anger that, that spurred the whole 
brand the Six Figure Home Studio because I just posted one article about how it was such bullshit advice that this producer gave. And you know, it was, this guy had like $20,000 to start his studio. I, I started mine with less than that and basically told my story on this blog article. And it essentially went viral with like 2,000 shares. I had 2,000 people on a mailing list within the first week. And that's when I knew I had to like keep going with it because this is stuff people wanted to know. But to, to go back to your main question here, it is a blog that te- teaches the business of recording studios. This is a field that has a lot of talented people that possess a lot of creativity. But the struggle that m- a lot of creatives have, not all of them, but a lot of creatives have this struggle with not understanding the business side of running a recording studio. It's the non-creative tasks. It's the boring, tedious taxes, marketing, like all the, the left brain activities that aren't as fun for creatives to do. But if you want to be a sustainable business in this year and beyond, these things are all important. So the podcast has 90 plus episodes now of just Chris and I's point of view on a huge array of topics. Yeah. I would say that, and correct me if you think I'm wrong on this, but I touch on some of these things in working class audio. You guys actually take it and take a deep dive into some of these topics so in some respects, I would almost call you a, a brotherly or sisterly podcast to working class audio because I listen to your podcast, I get a lot out of it, and it actually gives me fuel sometimes for some of the topics I want to talk about on working class audio. Yeah, from everything that I've heard from all of the episodes I've listened to from you, you like to talk about this subject a lot. And you get a really good point of view from people that we haven't been able to interview on our podcast. We're not, I don't think we're as big as you. And we don't have the clout that working class audio has. But we, Chris and I, most of the episodes are just Chris and I actually talking. We have a topic we want to dive deep into. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing to kind of get someone's story and to kind of get the bullet points of their life and career. And it's another thing to go really deep onto a subject. So we'll talk 45 minutes an hour about like something that seems mundane. But when you start breaking it apart, you realize how much work goes into making something as mundane as getting a website to, to work well for your studio. Like there's a lot that goes into that. So we'll talk about that sort of stuff. We don't have to get anything deep today, but that's just kind of how we do things is we like to go really deep on a subject. So you have a lot to, to take away. And, and I think the Chris coined the term, my podcast co-host, he coined the term an advice buffet. You just pick and choose what you like and you discard the rest. That's kind of how we like to do things. I think that's a good, good approach. I, I do that with everything. With everybody I meet, I cherry pick their ideas and and apply that to my life. And what doesn't work, you know, you toss. It I think aside. that's how that's the that's the whole thing about being a human is you get to do that. Yeah, that's right. So that's not the only thing you do. You you're also a producer, engineer. You mix. You have several other operations going on. You're you're a multifaceted guy. So let's just go through them a, a bit. Sure. Your current thing that you're really putting a lot of energy into, which I am such a huge fan of. And I, and audience, I'll put a link in the show notes for this file pass. This mm-hmm. is a, a thing audience where basically after I'm done with a mix or a master, I can post the results and give my clients the ability to stream that content and in a high quality way, listen to it and approve it. They can download it. It also gives me the ability to post the invoice for that content. Yep. Just to kind of share that. So quick backstory. I I have been running my studio four, five, six recordings since 2009. And I've done that for, it's changed a lot over the years. I was a full service studio where I'd have bands living with me while we recorded and produced albums. I'm in the heavy metal genre, just so people have kind of a frame of reference. That's my niche. 
And I eventually moved to just mixing and mastering just because that's where I wanted to shift things. And that was in 2015. And since then, I've kind of branched out into other areas, which, which is the podcast, the blog, and then now this software company. And this, this software company, FilePass, solves a major issue that I've had my entire career, which is, it's actually, it solves multiple issues. But the main one is when I'm collaborating with a client and I send them, say, a Dropbox link, because that's what I used before this, send them a Dropbox link, there's a number of problems with Dropbox. When they stream the file, first of all, it takes any WAV file and encodes it down to like MP3. And the quality of the MP3 has gotten better over the years. It used to be just a 128. I think it maybe, I don't know what it's at now, but it definitely is not a 128 anymore. But the quality was just trash. So if they streamed it in their browser on their phones, which is what a lot of my clients did, it just sounded like trash no matter what they did, even if I sent a WAV file. The way we solve that with FilePass is what you upload is what you get. If you upload a WAV file, it's going to stream a WAV file. We do no encoding to the file. So that was the first problem I wanted to solve. It's a very expensive problem to solve because to store a WAV file for one year is the same price as streaming it one time. <laughs> so it's, it's a very, very expensive way to do it. But that was just one of those areas we weren't going to budge on. The second issue with, with Dropbox that I had was I could not send client a link to their music until they paid me in full. Because that's the way I work. I do not send any tracks to clients that still owe me money because I don't want to go chasing down money. I'm not a debt collector. I'm a music producer or I'm a mixing, or a mixing engineer now. So the way we solve that with FilePass, there would be projects that were delayed weeks because I was waiting for the payment. Well, with FilePass, we have download protection to where they can stream only, but they cannot download. We'll soon have automated watermarks. So we can actually add watermarks to the track. So if they want to get clever and try to record it through their browser or something, they can't even do that. And also we have a thing called a paywall. So if if I send them a file, they can't download it. They can only stream it and they can actually pay through FilePass and I get my money and then they get their download instantly. So that was just one of those things that we wanted to fix. And the final thing on that was we wanted to be able to, to collaborate with clients. So the timestamp revisions inside the song was another huge thing that I wanted to have. So I'm not sending these long email threads back and forth with my clients with all these nitpicky details with all the like times written in there poorly. Now they just leave timestamps and I can see exactly on the song exactly where they want that thing changed. It's, it's like SoundCloud in the comments section, except it sounds a hell of a lot better. <laughs> right, right. SoundCloud is not what you want to upload your music to. Mm -mm. So that was kind of like the thing we were trying to, to solve when we started, when my co-founder and I got together to put this thing out there. And since then, we've just had so much feedback from our, our customers and people like you who, it's just like, you, you don't even think about like, what if you want custom branding on your site? You want to put your logo on it, make it actually look like your own thing. Like these are things that we don't think about when we were creating it in a vacuum, but now we have people using it. It, it makes it a lot more fun to think about where we can go with this. So we're, it's one of those things I'm super excited about it right now. It's become an absolute critical part of my workflow now in file delivery. Mine too. And I'm fortunate in that I can reach out to you and, and give feedback and also ask questions. But at its core... File pass, I think, is is the way most audio people are going to be dealing with audio in the future mm -hmm. because we've juggled through various, you know, FTP sites and Dropbox and Google Drive and all this. I find Google Drive horrendously confusing when I'm trying to find a file that somebody sent me, you know, sending their mix files, et cetera, for me to, to do a mix. So this is just such a, a great tool that I think a lot of you audience are going to really enjoy. So link will be in the show notes for sure. So you've got Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. You've mm -hmm. got File Pass. You also do some audio courses, one of which I'm still taking right now, which is the Profitable Producer Course. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of where, I mean, you 
the things you do already with file pass and, and six figure home studio already make you a little bit different kind of a guest than I typically have. The entrepreneurial aspects of what you do really differentiates you from the other guests in that I don't have any other guests. I don't believe that. Of course, they do things on pure mix or mix with the masters, but they don't actually do it themselves. They do it with the help of, of those organizations. You actually do it yourself mm -hmm. and you essentially, you and, and our other friends in our mastermind call have hit me to how it's done. And audience, if you're looking to get some great advice on how to either get your audio business up and running and or take a second look at how you've been doing it and maybe get a little bit of a fresh perspective, I can't recommend Brian's course enough. It's, it's very good. And the link will be in the show notes as well. How did you come into the idea of doing a course like The Profitable Producer? Yeah, sure. So that's, that's a really good question. And there's a few answers to this. One of the reasons I didn't do something like you see on Mix with the Masters or Pure Mix or one of these other sites is because I'm a no-name. Like people don't know who I am in the mixing community. Like I have, I have a, a decent following in the heavy metal community, but that's a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall mixing market. So I, I can't go to someone like Pure Mix and say, hey, I have some idea for something I want to do. I want to partner with you on. I basically had to make my own way because you know I'm not, I'm not a no-name in the music industry. I've made my career more as someone who like, you shouldn't be able to make six figures in the, in the heavy metal world. That's not how it works. But like, that's, that's kind of like my whole thing was I am, I'm honestly more of an entrepreneur than an audio engineer at this point. And that sounds like so sacrilegious to even say out loud because there's so much creativity and feeling that goes into the art of mixing and the art of producing music. But to admit that you're a, an entrepreneur at heart is, I guess, kind of sacrilegious. So I probably have some enemies listening to this show at this point right now. <laughs> but, but and, that, and that's fine. But I want to kind of defend myself a little bit and say that my passion, much like the other people listening to this show, is to do audio for a living. And what I consider audio, quote, audio, has shifted over the years to different businesses and different things that I do. But at the core, the desire is the same. And at the beginning, starting my studio in my parents' basement with like my DigiDesign 003 Rack Plus and my built from scratch computer that I got from all the parts from Newegg.com, like I had to learn really quick that if I wanted to do this for a living, I had to figure out the business aspects of it. So there was a lot of hard lessons learned along the way. And what got me to the six figure home studio and all the courses involved with that was blogging for three years, doing YouTube building an audience first of people that were hungry for this sort of stuff, and then talking to them, having conversations with the people, because I'm only one perspective, only one point of view. So mm -hmm. understanding what the needs of the, the group as a whole was a completely different thing. So there was a point where I hired a business coach to help me with this stuff. I was doing customer conversations. I was doing surveys. I was figuring out all the things that people struggle with before I ever created any sort of course around this, because I didn't want to put out some sort of money grab. People would question the motives I have because I call myself the Six Figure Home Studio, which is a very, very boastful name. But that was just what I came up with off the top of my head when I was launching a non-serious blog in 2014. It wasn't like some big brand I was trying to build. Now I'm just stuck with it. They question me because I, I focus so much on the business side of things, but I do that because no one else is. Where else do you talk about this sort of stuff? Who else is talking about that? We, like on our podcast, we don't allow people to talk about gear. We have something called a gear slut alert. If you talk about gear, you get the gear <laughs> slut alert. And that's because 
Every podcast talks about gear all the time. Every blog talks about gear all the time. Every YouTube channel talks about gear all the time. Gear is not what saves your business. And so the whole six figure home studio, the whole brand behind that is the, when everyone else is zigging, I'm zagging. I'm going over here talking about the actual fundamentals of business and what will make your business sustainable long-term while everyone else obsesses about gear plugins and the things that are fun to play with, the fun things that are fun to research, the things that are fun to, to do, learn and buy. But all of us over here in this six figure home studio camp, which is a pretty small camp right now are trying to, to put our heads down and, and get, get shit done. Yeah. Because I want to emphasize this in that you sound a little apologetic about your entrepreneurial bent, but the fact of the matter is, is you do these things now, but you did start out as a studio owner and figuring out the ins and the outs of it, building a business. And it just led you to focusing on the business rather than the gear and getting the gear that you needed when it was necessary. But I couldn't agree with you more in that everybody's just constantly talking about gear. Well, there's more to it than that. And my audience knows, I mean, I've been talking not about gear for the last almost five years, I think. So I think there's great value to your mindset there. And, you know, I agree. Gear is fun. Believe me. I, I go to Nam. I look at all this stuff and I drool a little bit and then go, okay, what do we really need to get done here? What's, <laughs> what's the point? So tell us about what got you into the desire to record, to be an audio professional. I feel like it's probably similar to a lot of people listening. I was, I was in a band before I did audio for a living and I had experience recording my music in studios. We were signed to Solid State Records, which is like a subsidy of Tooth & Nail Records. We did a bit of touring. And through that, I learned two things. And this is where my entrepreneur side started to come out. I was like the business guy in the band. I'm the one that did all the merch orders. I'm the one that that figured out the formulas to to know what ratio of small, medium, and large shirts we needed so that we ran out of all the designs and all the shirts at the exact same time instead of having 30 extra large shirts of our worst selling design left over at the end. I was the one that had to figure all that stuff out. And that was where my kind of entrepreneur side came up. But I, re- I realized after like four or five years of touring and recording in these studios and really loving that part of things, I learned that the only people in a band that make money are the people that are not in the band. So the, the music industry has a lot of money flowing through it, but it's the labels, it's the music producers in some areas, it's the mixing engineers, it's the, the, the tour managers, it's the, the band, like the music managers, it's even the merch, our merch guy made more than we did in the long run. At the end of the year, after everything was said and done, our merch guy made more than we did. And you know, I was getting to the point where I toured straight out of high school into my early 20s. And I was like, you know, I, I like touring, but this is not where I want to spend the rest of my life. And some people, that's the thing they want to do. But I knew that audio was where I wanted to move to. So I took a little bit of money that I had saved up from the tour, my tour life and bought that very basic gear that I was talking about a second ago. It's weird talking about gear because I literally never talk about it on my podcast. So like mentioning specific gear models, like my DigiDesign 003 Rack Plus, and I don't even remember what mics I bought back then, but it was like a very minor setup with like less than five grand worth of gear. And getting started in my parents' basement, it was, it's a funny story, actually. The day I got all my gear in, I spent 40 hours straight putting everything together, like setting it all up, learning it about it, like no sleep, 40 hours straight. It was like absolutely insane because I had hit this like flow state that I'd never experienced before. But then I slept for 12 hours. I was up for 40 hours more, just dicking around in my DAW, like trying to learn. Like I remember Googling how to change tempo in Pro Tools. Like I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know how to change the tempo. Like that was the, the basic stuff I was Googling. 40 hours straight, slept for 12 more hours. And then I was up for 40 hours straight again. So I'd put like 120 hours in, in like a week and a day. 
And that was when I knew that I was doing the thing that I needed to do because this was, it wasn't like it was a forced thing. It wasn't like some sort of like, I'm destroying myself to do this. I just lost track of time genuinely because I was loving this so much. Like, I don't remember if you remember the first time you, you opened a DAW up or you recorded audio and heard it back, played back to you, but that's like a special moment. And I feel like that was like the moment I found that this is what I want to do for a long, long time. So starting that is that that's kind of the, the thing that got me through the tough times when I was trying to make a business work in my parents' basement while, you know, they're upstairs yelling at me for, for recording drums downstairs. But within that first year, I had moved out into my first commercial facility. So things have shifted over the years. I'm in a, a commercial facility downtown in Nashville now where I'm recording this podcast. It's like a live work. I've always done a live work because that just financially makes more sense, but it's commercially zoned, but I also live here. It's more of an apartment anyways. But I've just found that I always want to have my foot in audio in some way, shape or form, however that looks. And I just go back anytime I have like a, a down month or a month where I doubt myself or something. I just remember that time, those, that, that 120 hour work week where I was obsessing over you know, all these, all these new things in life. Well, I, I do remember the first time I got my first Pro Tools rig, but my, obviously being older, my audio discoveries happened with, you know, analog tape and, and mixing consoles. And the decision to move to a DAW definitely was an exciting thing when I did it, but I definitely understand that, that thrill. However, I don't recall staying up for 40 hours <laughs> In a stretch, that's a little speed freaky of you, I yeah, have to in say. All fair, first of all, I was not on any drugs. Uh, okay. Second of all, I have not experienced anything remotely close to that. I now go to bed at like 9.30 p.m. I'm up at 5.30 a.m. Like I'm, a, I'm an old man now, but that was when I was 23 years old or 22. Yeah, dude, you're, you're just getting old. <laughs> that's okay. I'll send you a cane for your birthday. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So you learned a lot of big lessons in that basement studio at your parents. What were some of the lessons that you learned that you hold dear to this day? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I've thought about that before. Whether it be dealing with people or financial lessons or any of that kind of a thing. Well, I, th I think the first thing I learned was keeping your overhead as low as possible. It doesn't get any lower overhead than being in your parents' basement. I didn't have any bills to pay. So I, I was able to, I was in a very fortunate position to where I could go cash flow positives from day one. It didn't matter how much I made or didn't make. Fortunately, things took off pretty well because I was in a good niche at a good time and I could, I leveraged my name from my band at the time. But at the same time, there was a big struggle trying to convince bands to come to my basement, my parents' basement. I just called them my roommates to my friends, to anyone that came in there. Oh, these are my roommates. <laughs> and and there, was, there was no fooling anybody. They were obviously my parents because I look exactly like my mom. But I, I feel like I learned first and foremost, a very good lesson about taxes, which sounds super boring and, and basic. So I'll quickly go over this. First year I owed, I want to say like four or $5,000 in taxes. I did not want to pay it. My mom gave me some very good advice that I still remember to this day. She said, if you do not pay this now, 
there's a few things that's going to happen. First and foremost, you're not going to be able to buy a house ever because you're going to be cash poor on paper. If you try to cheat on your taxes, the government thinks you don't make a lot of money, which means banks think you don't make a lot of money, which means you can't ever get a car loan or home loan or whatever in the future if you ever want to buy a house. Second of all, if you don't pay your taxes now and just assume that money is never yours, just always, however many percent goes to the government, that is their money, put in a separate account, don't even assume it's going to be yours at any point. Don't claim ownership over it because if you can't do that now, as you make more money in the future, you're never going to be able to pay those taxes either. And I've been fortunate enough to make more money every single year since 2009, with the exception of I had one down year. But if I looked at what I pay in taxes today, it was more than I made that first year in audio. It might've been more than I made my second year in audio or first and second year together. But I was able to, because of that good advice from my mother for money management and paying taxes, that I need to set money aside for taxes every single month so that when it comes to time to pay taxes, I'm not scrambling last minute. Because that first year I was scrambling and it was hard. That's a heavy duty lesson to learn. It's, and it's a frustrating one when you're young, you know, to make some money and then realize, oh, I have to give part of it to the government. Mm, yeah. The self-employment cool. thing is, makes it tougher too, because you don't have, your, your paycheck isn't withholding taxes automatically like it is when you're an employee. Because I was working at GameStop during my last couple of years in the band. And then a little bit the first year of my audio career, I was working at GameStop to supplement my income. And I, I made, think, I think, five fifteen an hour, maybe five fifty by the time I left. It was a tiny amount of money. <laughs> Whatever minimum wage was back then, it was pretty low. And, and they would just take it out of my check. So I, th- I just kept whatever I got. And that was a completely different shift going to the self-employed home studio thing where I had to not only pay taxes, I had to pay both sides of self-employment tax. There's like a tax you pay that your, your employer pays half and you pay half if you're an employee. But if you're self-employed, you pay both halves. So it makes it even more difficult for US-based employees or US-based businesses. So you said you outgrew this, the, the basement within mm-hmm. the first year. Yeah. And how old were you then? I was around 22, okay, maybe 23 at most. And so how did you figure out, okay, well, I'm going to need to move out. What did you do to, to make that happen? And how did you educate yourself on the ins and the outs of commercial real estate? Yeah. So a couple of things. First was my family's always been big on Dave Ramsey. Uh, like I grew up in a pretty poor family and they had a lot of debt growing up and they eventually got out of a lot of debt with the help of Dave Ramsey's books and whatever other stuff, courses and stuff he sells. So I had the firsthand knowledge of not going into debt from seeing my parents go into debt and struggling and all the stuff that comes along with that. And then building up an emergency fund. So I had no debt starting the studio, thankfully. And when it came time to earn money, I was setting it aside into a fund for the future. I wasn't spending a bunch of money. I was making decent money considering I was living at home with my parents. I think my first year I actually made $29,000 recording bands in my parents' basement, which is a pretty good chunk of money for a 22-year-old, 23-year-old. And I'd managed to save up a good chunk of that for when I moved out and got my first commercial facility. Now, I didn't buy it. I rented it. And trying to get a commercial landowner or commercial building owner to lease out a building to a 23-year-old that wants to record bands in there is a tough proposition. But I was in a good financial position and able to offer six months upfront of my rent. And so he took it. And he even modified the studio in a way where he put glass between two rooms and built a little vocal booth out. And it was like really a good deal for me. And it was a good deal for him because he got paid up front for the first six months. So if I wasn't paying rent after that, he could just kick me out and he would already have the money. So those two things were very important on getting my first place. And I was there for a couple of years as I built my career up more and more, started doing a little bit 
few more label projects. But by the end of that, there's a whole other set of lessons at that facility that might be worth going into. But just getting into that was the lesson of money management and saving up money for unexpected expenses. Take us through those lessons learned at the commercial facility. Yeah. So that was when my career started to, I guess, quote, take off where I was working with more and more label projects. And these are small labels in the metal world, but these were still big projects for me because these are bands that I knew of, bands that I liked, labels that I had looked up to. And to start getting my first handful of label projects was a big deal for me. But the the flip side was I didn't understand a, a few things. I didn't understand A, how to keep from overextending myself because I just said yes to everything. And B, I didn't understand how to be more efficient in the studio time-wise with my time. So that manifested itself in a couple of different ways. A, it meant that I was working nonstop, like 80-hour weeks typically. Whoa. B, it meant that my social life completely died. Like I was, my studio was out in the middle of kind of nowhere. So I was 30 minutes from friends and family. So by the time I was done working at the end of the day, I was too far from my friends and too drained to want to go drive to them. And no one wanted to come out to where I was because I was in the middle of nowhere. So my social life just went completely, it was gone like overnight. And those two things alone were bad. But then because I was spread so thin time-wise, I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing. I was kind of getting into a depression at the time, to be honest. I hit this point where I completely fucked up a project where it was a band that recorded a full album with me. I accidentally deleted all the files for it. And here's a, here's a fun lesson to learn. Don't ever delete files from a folder because sometimes Pro Tools likes to record files into another project's folder. So if you're trying to save hard drive space because you're cheap and you <laughs> delete that old folder, you're taking two projects down with you. So this project, they did all the, the full album, all the instrumentals. The vocalist was having problems with her vocals. So she had to, to step out for a while and like heal up a bit. So it was like two or three weeks when she came back and I cleaned off that old, old project from two years ago that I didn't realize their files were being recorded to because I was self-taught Pro Tools guy. I didn't know how to do file management, right? You know, I, I deleted these files and then I load up the session and the session's all there. All the markers are there. All the tempo changes are there. All the regions are there. None of the files are in those regions though. So they're just blank <laughs> regions. So I just panic. And I, th- thankfully they weren't in the studio when I did, did this actually. I did this before they got into the studio and I, and I looked around and I looked around and then I finally found that the folder these tracks were pointed to was the folder I had deleted. So I knew instantly that I was like, these, are, these files are gone. I can't do anything about it. So I had to call the band and I gave them two, two options. Option A was I would refund all their money even though I'd already done all the work, I'll just refund all their money. And they can go somewhere else to, re- to re-record it all, or I'll re-record it all for free. And, and they can throw in a couple extra songs just for the horrible inconvenience of it. Cause it was a waste of their time too. I don't know if that was the right move or not, like offering those things. I don't know what else I could have done. They probably could have sued me for the, the waste of time and money. Like it probably could have been a way more messy ordeal than it was. But I, I was just honest with them. I said, lost your files. Like they're gone. I can offer you these two things. Let me know what you guys want to do. And they took option B, which was to re-record it all for free. Now that sounds great, but the issue is I'm already stretched thin. Financially, I'm doing okay. It's not like I'm like broke, but I'd have no idea how to manage my schedule and still have a social life and still enjoy life outside of the studio. And so they come back into the studio to re-record this entire album for free. And by by the time we were done with it, I had nothing left. This was like the lowest point in my career because have you ever worked for free for like three and a half weeks on a project that you got zero dollars for because you lost all the files and had to re-record it all for free plus two extra songs? Like I have not done that. It's a low, low point, I think, for any anybody. So that's the point where like I was just like, okay, this is this is unsustainable. 
I cannot do this anymore. Like I hate myself. I hate what I'm doing. I had actually gained a bunch of weight during that time. It was, it wasn't a good time just to say. And eventually I I just kind of hit this point where I've gone over the story a a few times, I think on the podcast, I I may go into more details. There's like episode two of the podcast. I kind of tell this whole story a little bit more of the other six figure home studio podcast. Episode two, Chris interviews me. And then episode three, I interview Chris. You kind of get both of our backstories there, but long story short, I finally just kind of made a change to, I I made a resolve to make a change of some sort. I didn't know what it was going to be. I knew, I knew I had to take hold of something because I was, I was honestly depressed at the time. And I feel like a lot of audio people are or in a depressive state because they get in a similar circumstance where it's all work and there's no joy in life. And so all you're doing is working every, every day you're in, I call it engineer hell where you're just working in like technician mode. You're working on like tweaking files and doing researching gear and looking up plugins and buying things and working in the studio and getting into really like technical hell. And there's very little joy in that if you have no balance in life. So like I had to just resolve to make a change. So long story short, almost within a week, I moved to Nashville <laughs> to, to the place I'm at today. Still, I found a place that I thought was cool, had no photos, just only description on Craigslist. I found this place on Craigslist, which by the way, I found my first commercial location on Craigslist as well. And so everywhere I've ever lived as an adult, I found on Craigslist. So that's a fun story. Anyways, I moved to Nashville from a place I found on Craigslist. And, and just that move alone was the best decision I ever made in my life. Because from that point on, like I live downtown, I am downtown as downtown gets. I'm like, three blocks from the Music City Center, which where, is where NAM is held. And, or Summer NAM, the, the lamer NAM. And now I'm actually like, I'm the hub in which all my social circle <laughs> is around, like physically. So now I actually have a social life. Now I have friends that I can spend time with. Now I have more to life than just the technical hell. And so that I don't make these stupid mistakes that I made when I'm in this like spread too thin, always working 80 hours a week, never have time to have fun, never have any sort of relief from the studio. Now I have more mental bandwidth in which to enjoy what I'm doing. Take it a little more slowly because again, we're not, we're not doing heart surgery here. We are making art. So putting yourself in technical hell to, to create music is not the way to do it. So that was, it was a long lesson and it took a lot of painful mistakes made during that time that I didn't go over, but you kind of get the gist of it. Yeah. And it's, and I identify with it. I identify with the getting to hitting rock bottom, rock bottom Mm, for you. That's exactly what it is. And everybody's rock bottom is different, but rock bottom nonetheless. And some people make a different decision. Some people will leave that profession or whatever it is that's important to them that ultimately got them there. And others will, like you, like me, we decide, okay, enough is enough. I have to figure this out. I have to reinvent and I'm not going to take it anymore. And I'm going to do it a different way. And that's clearly what you did. I think a lot of it was who I surrounded myself with. In Alabama, I was, I'm from Alabama. I didn't actually mention that, but I was in Lacey Springs, Alabama. That was where my, my first studio was. It's like 30 minutes south of Huntsville, Alabama for, for frame of reference. If anybody knows where the Rocket City is. In that area, I had no social circle. So I was just in my own like cave for lack of a better term. I was in like an echo chamber, which is a better term for audio guys because we're all audio guys here and girls. And when I moved to Nashville, I was surrounding myself with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds and people who are a lot better than me in a lot of different areas. And honestly, like one of the first people I met, like probably the first friend I made when I moved to Nashville, which was like a month into this, is someone that I'm still my best friend today. He was my best man at my wedding. 
He's my co-founder at FilePass. He's the one that created the actual tech of FilePass. And if I didn't move to Nashville, I would not have had that person in my life. Now, he's not just a business partner. He's not just like my, my best man and a, and a good friend. Like he's, he's been somebody that both of us have been able to be better off with each other than without. And there's a lot of friends in my life that we are both better off with each other than without. And in Alabama, I had no chance to, I had no chances to help anybody with their struggles in life. And I had no one to help me in my struggles of life. And that was like the, that was the biggest reason why I know it was the best move I ever made moving to Nashville. Not because it's any cheaper here. It's actually way more expensive to live in Nashville. The cost of living here is probably double or more what it is in Lacey Springs, Alabama. But I'm able to surround myself with better people who, who help bring me up when I'm in downtimes and people that I can help bring up when they're in downtimes. And I think that's a, that's a huge part of the stereotypical audio engineer. They like to lock themselves in a cave or an echo chamber. They like to tweak knobs. They like to play with the new compressor they just bought. They like to A-B test mics and they like to see which EQ has a slightly better warmth on this vocal than that EQ. But at the end of the day, they are not filling themselves up in other ways. They are completely neglecting their social needs and they're, they're worse off for it. They're completely ignoring all of the benefits that they could bring to someone else's lives and all of the benefits those people could bring to their lives if they were to just actually surround themselves with better people. So there's no easy solution to this because everyone has different levels of social anxiety, social awkwardness. I mean, there's books I can recommend for people. If you've ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, lamest book title of all time, but it's a book that was written in the 20s and it has stood the test of time is still one of the most recommended books as far as social skills goes and just basic social skills. But th- that, that's the kind of stuff that's helped me get past some of my social anxiety and those feelings of like, I don't have the energy to go out and hang out with friends. You know, those are those excuses we tell ourselves, but all of these things were things that helped me get over that social anxiety and lack of a so- having a lack of a social circle to lean on in those tough times. But man, I, I love being a national now. I, I don't know how, what else to say about that. Well, I always think getting out of one's hometown is critical to one's growth because, you know, had I stayed in Las Cruces, New Mexico, God knows where I would have been today. I think our growth can be stunted. And I'm not saying that if you stay in your hometown, that's going to happen. But for me, it definitely would have happened. And I definitely grew as a person leaving and seeing the world and seeing and, and meeting other people and this this also directly relates to what you're saying about being an audio engineer, being an audio professional, and isolating yourself. It's fine to be focused. I totally get that. But you got to get out and stimulate your mind with exercise, other people, other points of view, other types of music that maybe not, you know, maybe you're a metalhead. It's probably okay to go out and watch some other types of music that aren't exactly your cup of tea. And I think we become stronger as a result. I think a fun fact real quick is I actually, I don't listen to metal much anymore. Maybe in the gyms in the morning, that's about it. Now Mm -hmm. I listen to a lot of instrumental electronic music that zones me out while I'm working. But back to what you said about getting out of your hometown, that was actually a huge, huge issue for me, which is I was in a small town. I was from Athens, Alabama originally. That was where my first studio was in my parents' basement. And it's like a town of 20,000 people. It's not a big town. And a lot of the people you grew up with that you're friends with is, I don't want to discount people because there were some awesome people in my town, but you are friends by default, just by geographic location. You're in the same school, you're around the same people. And so therefore you are friends. Do you have none of the same values and goals of where you're trying to go? And what tends to happen in these smaller towns is I call it the Alabama mindset. 
it's not exclusive to Alabama, but that's what I call this. And that is they all have the path they're on. And that path is usually, I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to anyways. It's pretty small-minded, at least from my experience in my area. And if you try to break out of that small-minded thought process, people have a tendency to try to pull you back down. And they'll do that through putting you down. They don't want you to succeed. It's a very much like a zero-sum game in small town Alabama. And so that if you try to do anything outside of the norm, you will not have the support of your social circle. And that's one of the worst things that can, that can come of trying to break out and do something interesting, do something new. And I think in a lot of areas, a lot of cities, saying that you're going to do audio for a living is taboo. It's like, what? You're going to record? Yeah, sure, man, whatever. And you're going to hear that sort of stuff a lot. But getting into a city like Nashville, where it's like, oh, you're doing music for a living? Of course you are. You're in Nashville. Duh. Like where every other person is doing music for a living or at least working towards that. It's a completely different shift. Every single person is supportive of the other people. Now, there's obviously exceptions out there. There are people that are petty no matter what. But the overall mindset of the city of Nashville is the exact opposite of like the Alabama mindset. And cities like LA, cities like New York, bigger cities seem to have, not always, but seem to have a more supportive community, or you can at least find, you have a more, of ch- more of a chance to find a more supportive community for whatever you're working towards. And I think getting out of Alabama was probably one of the, the best decisions I could make given what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I, and I do want to emphasize, it's like, I have, I have some, some good friends back in my hometown who I greatly respect and I don't consider them small-minded people. I don't, I don't think anything negative of them, but I know for me, had I stayed back things would have been far different and my mindset would have been different. And I find that for me, getting out in the world really is just a rush and it it stimulates my brain to do the things that I've done and continues to, even when I travel today, even I know Nashville seems to get talked about like almost all the time on this podcast. This is like one of my favorite cities. It's a good place to be. But anywhere where there is art and music and, and things happening is a great place. So you made these decisions, you moved on from that mindset of where you were at. So what happened to that studio as a result? It was on the the old commercial space in Alabama. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I moved out of it and it sat on Craigslist for probably another year before someone else rented it out. But I don't think they, they put a studio in there or anything. It wasn't like this crazy, amazing facility. It was like I had a control room. I had a big live room that was, nothing was custom built out. Here's the thing. I, I don't think I've mentioned this at all. I've never had like this big custom build out for my studio. I've never had like a a custom design and constructed studio. I've never had a ton of gear. Like to this day, my quote fancy setup here is just an Apollo like eight. And I don't actually run any hardware at all other than a Kemper profiler for, for amp stuff. And I have, I do have amps and cabs here, but I don't even use those anymore. So I'm hundred percent in the box at this point. And that's how I've always been. and, And, and that's how I will continue to be. Simply because like, to me, it's, it's the ear, not the gear. And I love that that rhymes. And I don't know if I get to coin that term or not, but I, I just did. So, uh, it's the ear, not the gear. And, and I've always been like that. And I've actually, I have this weird aversion towards gear. It's not that I don't think it's important. I actually don't care about it. It's this, it's really weird. Something's broken in my head. Cause that's also sacrilegious <laughs> to talk about on, publicly on a podcast, but you know, I've made enough enemies here today. So I figured I'd just make a few more saying that. <laughs> Well, I'll give you credit for that for now until I discover somebody else said it. <laughs> but it, it's a great saying. So you moved to Nashville from mm-hmm. Alabama and 
Today, as I know you, you just have, I'll just say it, you have some OCD qualities that I, that I really think are outside of my skill set in terms of the things we've talked about over the years of even just before this podcast, you said, do you have a checklist before we start recording? <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, that's a part of your personality that I, that I really like. That's very different from mine. And so how did you come to this state of being so organized about systems and time management and dealing with your clients and and your money. Yeah. So that's that's a really good question. There was one point and I've talked about this a bunch before if anyone has ever heard me talk about this awesome if not awesome. I'm a golfer. If I still had any fans left on this episode, I just lost them. I was on the golf team in high school. I still play golf to this day. I'm really I'm a really lame human. I'm sorry. Uh but I <laughs> I, I play golf and so I was playing around the golf by myself just walking nine holes out here at a, at a course when I it was actually before I moved to Nashville, I was up here visiting my sister and actually take that back. It was after I moved here. I was out there playing nine holes, walking nine holes. And I joined up with this random guy playing golf. And it was interesting because he was up here scouting out a new location for another, another restaurant that he was going to open. And he had this restaurant in Tallahassee that was doing really well. And he started it with a relatively small amount of money for a restaurant. And he, I just started asking him a bunch of questions about how he ran his business and what he was doing with it and how it was doing and how he was up here playing golf when the business was running down in, in Tallahassee. The place was called Chubby's Chicken, by the way, if you want to look it up. I think it's still around today. But this is like 2014 or maybe even 2013 or maybe even before that. I don't even remember the timeline anymore. But uh, I was playing golf with him. And it was super interesting because he had set this business up. He recommended a book to me. The E-Myth Revisited was the book. It's by Michael Gerber. It's vaguely relevant to our audience, you know, the, our listeners, it, there might be some things in there, but it's more for brick and mortar businesses. And that's what he did. And I'm getting to a point here, I promise in a second. He's telling me about this business he ran and he, this book he read, and he had systemized his business and created all these checklists and processes for his business. And it got to the point, bottom, long, long story short, it got to the point where he was up here playing golf. The business was making 30 grand a week and he didn't have to do anything for it. He had employees working the floor. He had two managers watching on cameras, making sure everything was done correctly. And at the end of the day, everything else was just profit to him. And he just kept it and he was going to expand locations and he had the system down pat. And that was just super interesting to me. It didn't really help my studio much at all, but it like lit something inside of me just to even hear that it was possible. Because again, this was like either before or right after I moved to Nashville. And I had never met a real entrepreneur before. I met a lot of like entrepreneurs. I met a lot of CPAs who you could call a, an entrepreneur, but they're really just working for, they just created a job for themselves. I'd never met someone who like had done something like this. And it was, so it was really cool to pick their brain and kind of see this mindset in, in person. So he recommended some books and I read those and they were cool. But then I found some podcasts that were a little bit relevant for what I was trying to do. And it got to the point where I realized there were a lot of inefficiencies of what I was doing. If you look at the way McDonald's is run, and if, if you look at the way that a lot of franchises are run, there's a lot of repeatable, low-value tasks that in no way, shape, or form help the creative portion or the unique portion of what you do. So there's two parts of recording or mixing or whatever you do or producing. There are the technical parts that literally anyone with a checklist could do. That's session prep, that's naming files, that's doing fade-ins and fade-outs, that's organizing files, making sure files are sent, making sure emails are sent, making sure people are followed up with. All these things are things that if you just have instructions, any human can do it. But instead, we do it at the studio as the audio engineer, as the producer. We try to be everything. And so all these things are things you could hire somebody for $10 an hour to do. And so that's dragging our hourly pay down. 
Every single hour we spend answering emails, organizing files, setting up sessions for mixing, bouncing files down, sending files to clients, following up with people in our CRM, which is a, called a customer relationship management system. We're not going to get into that because that's way too down a rabbit hole and nerdy. But all these things are things that drag your hourly pay down. And I started realizing that I could hire somebody to handle all that for me. So I started either doing two, one of two things. One was automation, which is like if there's a software that will do something for me, like follow up with people automatically until they reply or until we hit a certain number of, of follow-ups. These are all things that we can make a machine do so we don't have to do anymore. So that's great. That's off my plate. It takes me an hour to set up and then I never had to think about it again. But there's certain things that a human has to do. Like when a client sends me files for mixing, I don't have time to go through every single file and make sure they're labeled correctly, make sure they're all consolidated to zero, make sure that the right bit depth, the right sample rate. I don't have time to do all of that or I shouldn't do that. I do have time, but I'm not going to. I will instead hire a, uh, an assistant to do all my mix prep for me. And so that's somebody I can hire at a certain rate per hour. And that takes away a huge portion of all of the non-creative tasks that now when I sit down and open up the session, the only thing I'm doing is the creative part, the thing that I'm hired to do, actually making it sound good. And so when I'm done, I can save and my assistant will take care of the rest. And that's how I have my business, business set up now. That wasn't how I had it set up before. And getting from before, which is my parents' basement or that place in Alabama where I was working eight hours a week, getting from that to where I am now was a very, very long learning process. It was a lot of books. It was a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of hiring people that didn't stick around for very long. It was a lot of creating automations that broke with software or creating a checklist, a system for someone to follow that they still screwed up. And so I had to iterate on that checklist and know that like, okay, whenever you import the files into the session and they are not lining up, then do that. Like I have to be very, very specific. And if we talked about before the podcast, it's like an, an airline pilot. They don't do the checklist because they don't know how to do it, which isn't the case anymore. My, my assistant doesn't know how to do things. It's not that my assistant doesn't know how to do things. He does know how to do everything, but we're all humans. Like you on your podcast, there might be a day where you forget to hit the record button. I've heard of people doing that. And so you go for an entire interview and you haven't actually been recording anything. And then you've lost an entire awesome interview with Brian David Hood instead of actually recording it. If you'd had a checklist, you wouldn't have forgotten to hit the record button. I just looked down as you said that. I was like, oh my God, am I recording? <laughs> well, the good thing is I have it recording both of our audio on my end. So if worst case scenario, we just use my audio. But again, we're humans. And so planes have been crashed because a veteran pilot forgot to do one crucial thing that he's done a million other times. He just didn't do it that one time. So creating checklists that serve as both a reminder and as, as an educator for new people that are taking on a task, I had to learn all these things long-term. So not to go down that rabbit hole too far, but like that was what my, what I've had to learn was by necessity, by, by putting my, my foot to the fire, I guess is the saying where I want something done. And I, and I know that I've identified these parts of the, the process are for lack of a better word, waste of my talent. Every one of us are hired for a unique thing, hopefully or mm -hmm. else you're just a commodity and you're going to be the guy on Craigslist mixing songs for $5 a song. But if you have something unique about yourself that you're getting hired for, chances are 80% of what you do every day is wasted time that anyone else could do. And when I figured that out, that's when my income started going up. And again, I, I'm in the metal genre doing mixing work in Nashville. None of those things make sense, <laughs> but I'm able to make sense of it. And you're playing golf. And I'm playing golf, right. And I don't have any tattoos. None of these things add up, but I'm able to build a sustainable long-term career because I look at my business differently than the other guy down the road trying to do metal. I look at it as a lot of different moving parts, one of which is the systems I have in place. The other is the, the people I have working for me. The other is how I present myself as a brand 
and position myself. Am I a Ferrari or am I a Ford Taurus? Am I Whole Foods or am I Walmart? These are two different things that are the same thing, but completely different in our brains. We look at them differently. And there's a lot of things that I do to make myself look more legitimate than the guy on Craigslist selling $5 mixes. Yeah. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. We also were talking before the podcast, and we're talking about the, this, this checklist concept. Airline pilots have a flight checklist, and you, you said something critical there, and that was even veteran pilots have made critical errors that have crashed planes or come near to crashing planes. So we uh, surgeons also do a checklist yeah. with a crew of people, with the anesthesiologist. Because and, surgeons have sewn pieces of equipment into people because they left it in their body before they sewed it up. That's right. Like, that, that has happened before. That's a real thing. I like how you look at this stuff. And for some of us, it's a little foreign. I'm sure we're, I've got some listeners now that are going, oh man, I, I don't know. I can't listen to this anymore. But the distinction we want to make here is that just because you pay attention to these things does not necessarily mean you're doing a disservice to the art. The art is still there. You're just trying to improve everything around it so that the art can be facilitated in a better way. And with a focus on that rather than, oh my God, did I send that client email? Oh, oops. Oh, I'm not recording. Oh, right. So I'm a fan of of these ideas and and I'm really that's one of the things that I really like about knowing you is what's Brian and Chris going to talk about today on on this podcast what have I not thought about and then and your profitable producer course has been that for me it's like well yeah common sense stuff but then when you lay it out in a in a the way that you have it's made me rethink am I doing this the best way I could be doing it you know my, and speaking in terms of an audio career which I still am pursuing. So well, I, want to, I want to say something on that real quick. You, you mentioned like people that are listening right now that they don't want to think about the stuff, don't want to talk about the stuff They'd rather go back to just, just thinking about audio, just doing audio. And, and for me, like, I don't really have that option. Like if I want to do audio for a living, if I want to create art for a living, these two things have to coincide. If I want to do this for a living, I have to take the business portion seriously or else all I have is a hobby. And if all I have is a hobby, then I'm back working at GameStop for 5.15 an hour because I haven't had a job since then and I probably couldn't get anyone to hire me at a real job if I wanted one. So I, I have to make my entrepreneur endeavors work or else I can't do what I love doing for a living. And that comes with a lot of adult things and it be, you have to become an adult in business as well. And you can't simply ignore all these things because here's the, here's the thing that we really haven't even touched on is 
every single year, that kid that was working on his laptop, making beats, selling them on some website for $5 each when he was 12 years old. Well, pretty soon he's going to be 20 years old and he's going to have eight years of experience making beats or producing tracks. And he's going to be way more talented than any of us. And he's going to have listened to the Six Figure Home Studio podcast or taken one of my courses or taken his own path through business, reading other books, because there's plenty of books out there for business that are relevant to us. One of them being Built to Sell. It's a really good book. I recommend anyone reading it if they are running a service-based business like a studio. But this kid is going to be so much better equipped than any of us are. And he's going to take over his, perspe- his respective genres. And so it's going to get more and more and more and more difficult to make a sustainable career out of this as more and more and more people grow up in audio. It's not like me where like at 23 years old or 22 years old, I get my first boxes from sweetwater.com of all my sweet gear and start playing with it all. These people have grown up with it from childhood now. This is a completely unprecedented thing that we have to take into account for our careers in the future. So those who make it, are going to have to understand both the creative side, the artistic side of audio, and the business side in order to have a sustainable career if that's what they want to do long term. The people who only focus on one or only focus on the other are the ones that are not going to make it. And that's a terrifying thing. But if you can just face it and understand that both sides matter and that you know a lot of these kids that are working in their parents' basement with their laptops making beats growing up, a lot of them will be very talented, but they won't take the business part seriously. Those people won't make it. You will because you've decided to take both sides seriously. So it's not, it's not like you focus on one or the other. It is you need both sides of things in order to make this a sustainable career long-term. Yeah, you need that balance. It's, it's, yeah. And it's very important to have that. Talk to me about the habits you have, whether they be, you know, you, you talked about golf. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned a gym. So are there things that you do to keep your mind and body healthy so you can really focus on all the stuff we've been talking about? Mm-hmm. I literally was basically kicked out. I don't know if I was kicked out of school in third grade because of ADHD. The teachers like wanted to put me in some sort of alternative school. My parents were like, they're trying to put me on Ritalin. My parents were not about that life. So they actually pulled, I think they pulled me out of school to homeschool me, which I'm grateful for. But I, I've had ADHD pretty much my entire life. And so the only way I can get stuff done, I've found, is that I have to have routines around everything. I cannot rely on motivation. I cannot rely on myself to just go do things because you have to. Like, I'm the person that will, believe it or not, I will avoid things if I don't want to do them. But I found that the, the like mental hack I have for my ADHD brain is I have a routine around everything. So I wake up at, my alarm goes off at 5.55 a.m. I read a newsletter called Morning Brew, which is just a tech blog, newsletter thing. Super boring. Nobody in this audience will care about that stuff. For 15 minutes, I go to the gym. I work out. I'm home by 7.15. I cook my breakfast of one egg, scrambled, and oatmeal every morning. Exact same breakfast. It's been the same for like five years. Never get tired of it. By eight o'clock, I'm reading. I'll read for one hour. Whatever book is relevant to whatever thing I'm focused on right now. I'm, I'm a big believer in just-in-time information. I don't like reading about topics that I'll need one day. I want to read about what I need to know right now for what I'm working on or what I'm struggling with right now. So I'll read for an hour and then 9 a.m. to noon are what I call my sacred work hours. Nobody talks to me. My phone is on do not disturb. My computer's on do not disturb. I do not answer calls. I do not answer texts. I do not look at my phone from nine to noon because those are, those are my most productive hours in the entire day. And if I squander those away, I will not get anything done. So whatever my most important or most difficult or most brain draining tasks on my to-do list. I do those between nine and noon. 
And I, f- I forgot to mention this, but the night before I go to bed, every night I wrote, write the top three things I need to accomplish the next day down because that helps me start my day with focus instead of just like wandering into the studio or running into my office and figuring out what am I going to do today? So between nine and noon, my sacred work hours, hour for lunch, and then from one till five, I'm a nine to five guy from one to five, it can vary from day to day. And that really depends. I'll do interviews like this on the afternoons. I'll do, we do our podcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the afternoons. I'll take meetings in the afternoons or I'll work off something non-creative. So if it's like a spreadsheet I need to update, or if it's some boring task that I don't want to do, like paying bills, which actually all my bills are automated, checking bill statements, anything that is just the left brain, the non-creative tasks are my afternoon tasks. And that's how I've done things for the last few years. And we'll probably continue to to do things from here on out. When you do any kind of audio work, do you apply the same checklists or the same routines to working with a band, whether it's recording or mixing or whatever. So when I still recorded, I, I, I recorded my last band because I, like I said, I used to do a full production. I had the bands live here with me. That was super draining, but I did it for years. My last band that I recorded in the studio was 2015, in the spring of 2015. And now I just do mixing and mastering work. So now all the systems and checklists and all the, le- the left brain non-creative stuff is actually what my assistant handles. He does all the setup, all the prep work, checking all the files, communicating with the bands, making sure I have everything. And then when I open up the DAW, I do have a set way that I approach things. I actually like to, to start with drums and then guitars and then bass. I'm a little weird with that stuff, but I don't, I'm not super checklist oriented in there. I do run down a few things just to, to double check my assistant's work, but that's where the checklist goes away and I'm more on routine at that point. So I'll have a certain time or certain day that I'll attack certain things for the studio. But when it comes to the creative portion, I don't really have checklists around that because that's where you can't really systemize creativity and like the way you want things to sound. So, okay, this is key. This is where all of the systems and checklists are happening around the audio. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to doing it, that's when those go away and the creativity kicks in. And this is the big thing. A friend of mine here in Nashville is named Seth Mosley. He's had a wildly successful career in the, in the Christian music and now even more so in the country music genre, I think. And in some rock stuff like Skillet, I think he did. But he's had a wildly successful career and he's, he's the same way where he says all the systems and routines and all of his staff around him that he's hired throughout the years that work for him, all of that is exactly what helps his creativity because it keeps all of those left. Because think about this. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where some technical error comes up in a session when you're trying to be creative and then it completely rips you out of that creative mode and you get into to technician hell where you're trying to troubleshoot some problem and then it ruins the entire like creative moment and you have a lot of trouble context switching back into the creative mode. What Seth Mosley does and what I've, I've been doing as well is he puts this as a buffer basically around his creativity so that any sort of technical fire that pops up, he has some other person that can handle that. Or I have some other system that can handle that. And so it, all it does is foster creativity. This is not some effort of like systemizing creativity because I don't think that can be done. But what it is, is it's helping us be more creative because we do not have all these other things tugging in the back of our minds because, oh, we forgot to back up that hard drive. Oh, oh, we, we accidentally deleted this or, oh, we never did that session the other week because I forgot because I didn't know how to schedule it correctly. And it fell through the cracks. Like all these little things tear away our creativity because it spreads our brain too thin because it's trying to work on these problems in the back of our mind while we're trying to, at the front of our mind, focus on something creative, but it's struggling because we have so many things pulling our brain in so many different directions. So again, this is just something to foster creativity, not something to kill our creativity. You have recently gotten married. 
Yeah. And I'm really curious as to how your world with your new wife, how you guys have come together. Is there a little bit of a getting to know the systems that you have in place for her? It's actually probably been, I think you'd have to ask her more than me because honestly her life shifted more than mine because, you know, she moved in with me after we got married. I didn't move to where she was, you know, you know, she works from home, but now she works from our home instead of her home. So it's probably a bigger shift for her than it was for me at this point. But I think it probably helped the relationship because she gets to see this routine firsthand every day. So instead of like wondering why I don't talk to her between nine and noon every day and why I don't answer her phone calls between now she knows it's because I'm working and these are like, these are my power hours. It's definitely a change. I'm not going to pretend like it's, it's the smoothest thing ever, but we're both learning and we're starting our sixth month of marriage together this month and just trying to learn more and more about each other and how we work together. But I think, I think we're a good place. I've heard mixed things about people's first year of marriage, whether it's like cupcake land or hell. And I've never heard much between those two things, but fortunately I fell more into the cupcake land of things for my first year. So we'll see where that goes, but it's there, there are points where like she'll throw off my routine and I'll get like mad about it unjustly. And she'll like, she's a strong enough woman to, to gut check me in those moments, you know? So like, there's little things like that, that I'm having to just get over because it's not just me living alone anymore, but we're learning. Yeah. It's a work in progress. Definitely. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Report back to me in a few years and I'll tell you. <laughs> We're almost out of time here. This you've answered a lot of my questions preemptively just in in your in your routines. You know, we've talked a lot about balance. We've talked a, a bit about money to some degree. What's your overall financial philosophy as it pertains to being an audio professional? And I know it's it's a mixed bag because you you're not only an audio professional, but you're also an entrepreneur in in the sense of file pass and. Mm-hmm the six-figure home studio, et cetera. So tell me about what what your thought process is and maybe some things that our fellow brothers and sisters in audio can learn. Yeah. So when it comes to just managing money, I'm, I'm in the Dave Ramsey camp. I don't follow his investment advice to the T, but I will say is just as far as managing money, and this is where we get to a really boring topic that people are going to zone out on, but I'm going to try my best to keep it interesting. My whole goal, again, with audio is to foster their creativity, and keep the technician hell out of my brain. That technician person is a demon I do not want to become. Like when I get into technician hell, like I become a different person and I can't be creative. Money is one of those things that will zap your creativity faster than anything else. Debt and cash flow problems are the two things that kill studios faster than anything else. And cash flow problems just goes with overhead as well, having a lot, a high overhead, a lot, a lot of monthly payments that you have to pay in order to even survive. That's what kills studios. You can't afford your loans, if you have loans for something like a studio build out or gear, or you just run out of cash and you have to shut the doors. That's how studios shut down everywhere. So my whole goal is to keep that from ever happening to me. So what I do is I keep my monthly expenses as absolutely minimal as possible. I was making six figures a year for a number of years, and I moved into a place that was cheaper rent. And I was splitting rent with a roommate of mine. And him and I were splitting a tiny payment a month. And that was just in order for me to get my expenses down as low as possible so I could put as much money into my emergency fund as possible and not have to worry about finances. So my whole goal is to not get to the point where I'm in in financial hell either, which takes away from your creativity. So what I did for three years straight was I actually turned the place I'm in now. I moved back into it once I got married, but I turned my studio downtown into an Airbnb for a few years. And I moved out of it and moved into a home with a friend that we split the rent on because I was just doing mixing work. 
I didn't need a, a studio facility or a big location to do any work. And so I was able to do all my audio work from my bedroom at home in the suburbs and pay cheap, cheap rent and then rent my studio out on Airbnb and make more money than I actually made as a recording studio, which is bizarre to think about. So then I had doubled my income. I was still making the same mixing, but I was also making the same from my recording studio and I'm making the same from my Airbnb. So I'm not going to go down that whole Airbnb rabbit hole because that's a whole other business thing in and of itself. But you want to talk about highest and best use. I didn't need that whole facility for mixing and mastering metal bands. I could do that from home. So I turned it into something that was just, it made more sense financially and I didn't lose any business because of it. So my philosophy is when things are going well, put as much money into an emergency fund as possible because I want to have as long of a runway as possible because some months you will make a lot of money if you do things well. A lot of us, we have a big project that comes in or a big paycheck that comes in or someone finally pays an invoice or we get a big label project. And then you might have months where you're scraping by. You are scraping by. And just to give you some actual numbers, there was a month where I made $20,000 in a month. And then the month after that, I made $1,200 in that month. And that's like the reality of being an entrepreneur is you're going to have these huge peaks and valleys that you sometimes have no control over. Sometimes you do have control over and you can fix those things and keep those things from happening. But a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we don't have control over our finances month to month. So we have to have that buffer in place. Again, this is similar to systems and processes and people. How Seth Mosley has that cloud around him, protecting him from zapping his creativity. The financial buffer of an emergency fund with six to 12 to, I think I have two years of emergency fund just sitting in my bank account in case I can't make money for two years for whatever reason. That is a massive, massive weight off my shoulders financially, especially as a newlywed. So I always want to have that buffer. It's not making hardly anything financially as far as investments but I don't give a damn because I'm able to focus on my business. I'm able to focus on my marriage and I don't have to worry about the stock market going up and down. I don't have to worry about my income from month to month going up and down. All I know is worst case scenario, I have two years of runway to figure it out. And that is to me in a nutshell, that is the epitome of having control over your finances because you don't, you don't have to make scarcity-based decisions. We all, if we are stuck making scarcity-based decisions, we take that shitty band we shouldn't have taken because we need the money. I don't need that band. I don't need that money. I don't need that stress. And that's only because I have the emergency fund saved up. Some of us, we might have to go, if our car breaks down, we have to get a loan because we are strapped financially. That's a, that's a scarcity-based decision based on our finances. So I, hopefully I'm not going too far down the rabbit hole here, but. No, but you did say something that reminds me to, to reiterate this. I did say, you know, you're an audio professional and an entrepreneur, but realistically as audio professionals, we are entrepreneurs. So yeah, I like to use the word entreproducer. Entreproducer. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll go with that. And the other thing that I wanted to mention, I mentioned in one of my monologues in a past podcast, I talked about, you know, how much gear do we really need to do our job? And the same could be said for how much space do we really need to do our job? And sometimes we just by habit, we tend to find ourselves in spaces that might be too big and we fill them full of stuff that really we don't use and has a lot of sentiment, sentimental value, you know, here, this is my first guitar amp and, oh, I've got 20 drum sets and, you know, I got to store all my drum sets. But at the end of the day, if you really reevaluate your space and be willing to trim down and use that kind of purging mindset that I've talked about in the past on this show, you could really get it down to what is necessary to do the job. And I think that plumbers and electricians probably 
do that too. I mean, I don't know very many plumbers or electricians that are stockpiling. Oh, that, you know, I got a whole set of wrenches in there that I used to use that, uh, you know, we just keep them around, you know, just in case we might need them. They're not reading Rinse Slet magazine. No, they're fixing pipes. They're, yeah. you know, they're dealing with people's plumbing or, you know, in the case of electricians, electricity. And I think if we take a hint from, you know, from some of those working class trades like that, uh, we could probably learn a lot. I should, in fact, probably have a, a plumber or an electrician on this show for that very purpose. Yeah, we've thought about having guests in other other types of service-based businesses because, there, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. You can learn, I don't know about from a plumber, there are some, some similarities in business models, but definitely from photographers, videographers, graphic designers, illustrators, all these areas have very, very similar business models to us where it's like, we have to find clients and then those clients pay us and then we perform a service. That service involves some sort of creativity. And then at some point, we hope to get the remaining balance if we took a deposit, or we hope to get any payment if we did the work on spec, which I don't recommend. And then we send the files to the client. So it's it's very much a similar thing, and we should all be learning from each other. But I feel like some of these other businesses, these other service-based businesses, have a little bit more, the people are more accepting of understanding the business of actually running their businesses. Whereas audio professionals tend to have this resistance to business. This, they, have, they feel like they're allergic to business and marketing and sales and taxes and finances. And these are all things we try to avoid. But in reality, like this is, you cannot have one without the other, unfortunately. That's right. Brian, this has been really, really fun having you on. And, and these are topics that are near and dear to my heart. And, and a lot of what is at the core of working class audio and definitely is what the Six Figure Home Studio podcast is about. So audience, just a, just a few reminders. I'll put links in the show notes for the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, File Pass, the Profitable Producer course that Brian has that I am still in the middle of taking, and any other relevant links that we find necessary for you, we'll make sure that they're there. So do stop by and check out the links at workingclassaudio.com. Brian, thank you so much. It's great to chat with you in this environment. We chat a lot and, uh, and I really enjoy our conversations. Dude, absolutely, man. I enjoyed being on here. Brian David Hood here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show, including Anne Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith with his fantastic voice there at the beginning of the show. And I want to thank you. Keep coming back. Tell everybody about it. And uh, yeah, subscribe in the email list at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. 
And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 